Section 37 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 62, The Fall of the Great Administration, Part 2. Mr. Gladstone's measure was a gallant and well-meant effort to reconcile the conflicting claims. He proposed to make the University of Dublin the one central university of the country, and to make it a teaching as well as an examining body. Trinity College, the colleges of Cork and Belfast, the existing Catholic university, a body supported wholly by private funds and which had no charter, were at once to become members of the new university. The College of Galway was to cease to exist. The theological faculty was to be taken away from Trinity College, Dublin, and handed over to the representative body of the Irish disestablished church. The new university was to have no chairs for theology, moral philosophy, or modern history. The governing body of the university was to be composed in the first instance of twenty-eight ordinary members to be nominated in the act. Vacancies were to be filled by the crown and by co-optation alternately for ten years. After that time, four members were to retire annually, one successor to be named by the crown, one by the council, one by the professors, and one by the senate. In addition to the ordinary members, the affiliated colleges would be allowed to elect one or two members of council according to the number of pupils in each college. The money to sustain the university was to come in proportionate allotments from the revenues of Trinity College, a very wealthy institution, from the consolidated fund, the fees of students, and the surplus of Irish ecclesiastical property. Trinity College and each of the other affiliated colleges would be allowed to frame schemes for their own government. Thus, therefore, Mr. Gladstone proposed to establish in Ireland one central university to which existing colleges and colleges to exist hereafter might affiliate themselves and in the governing of which they would have a share, while each college would make what laws it pleased for its own constitution, and might be denominational or undenominational as it thought fit. The legislature would give an open career and fair play to all alike, and in order to make the university equally applicable to every sect, it would not teach disputed branches of knowledge or allow its examinations for prizes to include any of the disputed questions. The colleges could act for themselves with regard to the teaching of theology, moral philosophy, and modern history. The central university would maintain a neutral ground so far as these subjects were concerned, and would have nothing to do with them. This scheme looked plausible, and even satisfactory for a moment, it was met that first night with something like a chorus of approval from those who spoke. But there was an ominous silence in many parts of the house, and after a while the ominous silence began to be very alarmingly broken. The more the scheme was examined, the less it seemed to find favor on either side of the house. It was remarked that on the morning after the introduction of the measure, the Daily News, a journal which might have been expected to deal favorably with any proposal made by the government, came out with a criticism which, although courteous and cautious, was decidedly damaging. The defects of the scheme soon became evident. 
the one great defect was that it satisfied nobody it proposed to break up and fuse together three or four existing systems and apparently without the least prospect of satisfying any of the various sects and parties to compose whose strife this great revolution was to be attempted the english nonconformists were indignant at the proposal to endow denominational education the irish protestants complained bitterly of the breaking up of the old university system in dublin the catholics declared that the measure did not in any way meet their claims for a catholic university the authorities of the catholic church in ireland pronounced decisively against the measure the men who proclaimed themselves devoted to culture sneered at the notion of a national university which professed to have nothing to do with moral philosophy or modern history it may be remarked that mr mill had already suggested that history is one of the branches of human knowledge which had best to be left to private cultivation it would certainly be difficult to get a theory of modern history in an irish national university which would be acceptable to all the sects and parties in the country it is idle to plead that history is the study of facts in no chapter of history even the simplest are the facts so clearly defined as to show the same to all eyes two eminent men had just been making a study of the same events in english and irish history one particular set of state papers was the subject of each man's examination on the study of the same set of papers the two men came to diametrically opposite conclusions not merely as to inference but as to fact again how would it be possible to teach that chapter of history which describes the political career of o'connell in such a way as to be acceptable to the ulster orangeman and the munster catholic let us fancy the university of london having a chair for the teaching of modern history and offering prizes for proficiency in an elucidation of the political careers of mr gladstone and lord beaconsfield yet it does seem as if the difficulty in the way of teaching history from the chair of an irish national university ought to have been a reason for not attempting under such conditions to set up a central and sole institution of that kind was it in fact possible that there could be one irish national university available for all sects and parties to us it seems that this was not possible except that such sacrifices of the educational character of the university as to make it of little worth as a permanent institution there was great justice in the complaint that soon began to be heard from both sides of the house of commons you are spoiling several institutions and you are not satisfying the requirements of anybody whatever the agitation against the bill grew and grew the late professor cairns then in fast failing health inspired and guided much of that part of the opposition which condemned the measure because of the depreciating effect it would have on the character of the higher education of ireland the english nonconformists were all against it the conservatives were against it and it soon became evident that the irish members of parliament would vote as a body against it for the second reading the crisis came on an amendment to the motion the amendment was moved on march third by mr burke brother of the late lord mayo the debate which lasted four nights was brilliant and impassioned 
Mr. Disraeli was exulting, and his exultation lent even more than usual spirit to his glittering eloquence. He taunted Mr. Gladstone with having mistaken the clamor of the nonconformists for the voice of the nation. You have now had four years of it, he said. You have despoiled churches. You have threatened every corporation and every endowment in the country. You have examined into everybody's affairs. You have criticized every profession and vexed every trade. No one is certain of his property, and nobody knows what duties he may have to perform tomorrow. I believe that the people of this country have had enough of the policy of confiscation. There was, of course, extravagance in these charges, but their very extravagance suited the temper of the House, and Mr. Disraeli understood his audience and its mood. When Mr. Gladstone rose to speak at the close of the fourth night's debate, it soon became evident that he no longer counted on victory. How indeed could he? He was opposed and assailed from all sides. He knew that the Senate of the University of Dublin had condemned his measure as well as the Roman Catholic prelates. He had received a deputation of Irish members to announce to him frankly that they could not support him. His speech was in remarkable contrast to the jubilant tones of Mr. Disraeli's defiant and triumphant rhetoric. It was full of dignity and resolve, but it was the dignity of anticipated defeat met without shrinking and without bravado. A few sentences in which Mr. Gladstone spoke of his severance from the Irish representatives with whom he had worked cordially and successfully on the church and land bills were full of a genuine and noble pathos. He touched the heart of many an Irish member who felt all that Ireland owed to the great statesman but who yet felt conscientiously unable to say that the measure now proposed was equal to the demand of the Irish Catholics. Mr. Gladstone was the first English Prime Minister who had ever really periled office and popularity to serve the interests of Ireland. It seemed a cruel stroke of fate which made his fall from power mainly the result of the Irish vote in the House of Commons. Such was, however, the fact the second reading of the bill would have been carried by a large majority if the Irish members, who were unable to give it their support, could even have conscientiously refrained from voting against it. The result of the division was weighted with breathless anxiety. It was what had been expected. The ministry had been defeated by a small majority. 287 voted against the second reading, 284 voted for it. By a majority of three, the great liberal administration was practically overthrown. The great minister had failed. Like the hero of Schiller's ballad, the brave swimmer had plunged once too often into the flood to bring out a prize, and he perished. The ministry did not indeed come to an end just then. Mr. Gladstone and his colleagues resigned office, and the Queen sent for Mr. Disraeli. But Mr. Disraeli prudently declined to accept office with the existing House of Commons. He had been carefully studying the evidences of conservative reaction, and he felt that the time for his party was coming. He had had bitter experience of the humiliation of a minister who tries to govern without a majority in the House of Commons. He afterwards drew an amusing picture of his experiences in that way. 
he declined to accept office with the existing parliament why not then it was asked dissolve parliament to that mr disraeli answered not unreasonably that it was easy for statesmen in office to dissolve parliament but that it would be a very different thing for a man to have to form an administration and then immediately dissolved he could of course form a government he said and dissolve in may but then he had nothing in particular to dissolve about the functions of an opposition were critical he could not pretend to have a regular policy cut and dry on which the country might be asked to pronounce an opinion at a general election the irish university bill was hardly a question on which to go to the country and besides it was not a question on which mr disraeli could be expected to appeal to the constituencies seeing that the house of commons had decided it in a way of which he approved the situation was curious there were two great statesmen disputing not for office but how to get out of the responsibility of office the result was that mr gladstone and his colleagues had to return to their places and go on as best they could there was nothing else to be done mr disraeli would not accept responsibility just then and with regard to the interests of his party he was acting like a prudent man mr gladstone returned to office he returned reluctantly he was weary of the work he was disappointed he had suffered in health from the incessant administrative labor to which he had always subjected himself with an unsparing and almost improvident magnanimity he must have known that coming back to office under such conditions he would find his power shaken his influence much discredited he bent to the necessities of the time and consented to be prime minister still he helped mr fawcett to carry a bill for the abolition of tests in dublin university as he could do no more just then for university education in ireland the end was near during the autumn some elections happening incidentally turned out against the liberal party the conservatives were beginning to be openly triumphant in most places mr gladstone had made some modifications in his ministry mr lowe gave up the chancellorship of the exchequer in which he had been singularly unsuccessful mr bruce left the home office in which he had not been much of a success mr gladstone took upon himself the offices of first lord of the treasury and chancellor of the exchequer together following an example set in former days by peel and other statesmen mr lowe became home secretary mr bruce was raised to the peerage as lord aberdare and was made president of the council in the room of the marquis of ripon who had resigned mr childers resigned the office of chancellor of the duchy of lancaster and mr bright whose health had now been restored came back to the cabinet in charge of the merely nominal business of the duchy there could be no doubt that there were dissensions in the ministry mr baxter had resigned the office of secretary of the treasury on the ground that he could not get on with mr lowe who had not consulted him with regard to certain contracts and had refused to take his advice the general impression was that mr childers gave up the chancellorship of the duchy because he considered that he had claims on the office of chancellor of the exchequer which mr gladstone now had taken to himself 
these various changes and the rumors to which they gave birth were not calculated to strengthen the public confidence in truth the liberal regime was falling to pieces lord salisbury speaking at a conservative banquet expressed his conviction that the conservatives would at last be able to draw the teeth and clip the claws of the liberal administration and exulted over the security obtained against revolutionary innovation by the fact that the country was likely to be governed for some time by a toothless liberal ministry ne quisquam ajacet posset superare nisi ajax it was mr gladstone himself who dealt the stroke which brought the liberal administration to an end in the closing days of eighteen seventy three the conservatives won a seat at exeter in the first few days of eighteen seventy four they won a seat at stroud parliament had actually been summoned for february fifth on the night of january twenty third an astonishing rumour began to fly through various limited circles of london politicians men were mysteriously beckoned away from dinner-tables and drawing-rooms and club-rooms agitated messengers hurried to ministerial doors seeking for information there was commotion in the newspaper offices the telegraph was set in constant action next morning all the world read the news in the papers mr gladstone had suddenly made up his mind to dissolve parliament and to seek for a restoration of the authority of the liberal government by an appeal to the people he vindicated his decision in an address to his constituents which was unfortunately all too long for genuine popular effect what the country understood by it was this that mr gladstone did not choose to bear the humiliation of seeming to have the authority he had received in eighteen sixty eight now sunk below the point necessary for the due defence and prosecution of the public interests that he proposed to obtain a new lease of authority by a popular verdict and that if restored to power he would introduce a series of financial measures which would include the total repeal of the income tax the country was taken utterly by surprise many of mr gladstone's own colleagues had not known what was to be done until the announcement was actually made the feeling all over the three kingdoms was one of almost unanimous disapproval mr gladstone's sudden resolve was openly condemned as petulant and unstatesmanlike it was privately grumbled at on various personal grounds to us it seems to have been impatient imprudent irregular but certainly spirited and magnanimous impolitic it no doubt was but it ought not to have been unpopular it must have caused great and at that time superfluous inconvenience to liberal politicians everywhere and we cannot wonder if they complained but to the country in general there ought to have been something fascinating in the very quixotry of a resolve which proclaimed that the minister disdained to remain in office one hour after he had found reason to believe that he no longer possessed the confidence of the people it was an error indeed but it was at least a generous error the mistake of a sensitive and a chivalrous nature mr gladstone had surprised the constituencies we do not know whether the constituencies surprised mr gladstone they certainly surprised most persons including themselves 
the result of the elections was to upset completely the balance of power in a few days the liberal majority was gone mr gladstone fought a gallant fight himself and addressed vast open-air meetings at blackheath with the energy of another o'connell but it was a hopeless fight against reaction when the result of the polls came to be made up it was found that the conservatives had a majority of about fifty even on the calculation far too favourable to the other side which counted every home ruler as a liberal mr gladstone followed the example set by mr disraeli six years before and at once resigned office the great reforming liberal administration was gone the organizing energy which had accomplished such marvels during three or four resplendent years had spent itself and was out of breath many causes indeed concurred to bring about the fall of the liberal administration it had committed grave faults itself some of its members had done it serious harm various powerful interests were arrayed against it but when all allowance has been made for such considerations it will probably be seen that the most potent influence which bore down the gladstone government was in fact that people in general had grown tired of doing great things and had got into the mood of the lady described in one of mr charles reed's novels who frankly declares that heroes are her abomination the english constituencies had grown weary of the heroic and would have a change had the liberal ministers consented to remain in power a few days a very few longer they would have been able to announce the satisfactory conclusion of a very unsatisfactory war this was one of the least of all our little wars a war from which it was simply impossible to extract anything in the way of glory and in which the only honour could be just that which the skill of the english commander was able to secure the honour of success won in the promptest manner and with the least possible expenditure of life the ashanti war arose out of a sort of misunderstanding the ashantis are a very fierce and warlike tribe on the gold coast of africa they were at war with england in eighteen twenty four and in one instance they won an extraordinary victory over a british force of about a thousand men and carried home with them as a trophy the skull of the british commander-in-chief sir charles mccarthy the ashantis were afterwards defeated and a treaty of peace was concluded with them by the governor of our gold coast settlements mr maclean the husband of miss landon better known to literature by her initials l e l a woman whose poetical gifts not in themselves very great combined with her unhappy story to make her at one time a celebrity in england in eighteen sixty three as has been already told in these pages a war was begun against the ashantis prematurely and rashly by the governor of the gold coast settlements and it had to be abandoned owing to the ravages done by sickness among our men in eighteen seventy two some dutch possessions on the gold coast were transferred by purchase and arrangement of other kinds to england and this transaction ended like most of the same nature by entangling us in misunderstanding quarrel and war the king of the ashanti claimed a tribute formerly allowed to him by the dutch and refused to evacuate the territory ceded to england he attacked the fontis a tribe of very worthless allies of ours 
and a straggling harassing war began between him and our garrisons the great danger was that if the ashantis obtained any considerable success or seeming success even for a moment all the surrounding tribes would make common cause with them the government therefore determined to take up the matter seriously and send a sufficient force under an experienced and well-qualified commander with instructions to take advantage of the cool season and penetrate to the ashanti capital kumasi and there inflict a blow that would prove that the ashanti king could not harass the english settlers with impunity when the choice of a commander came to be discussed only one name as it would seem arose to the lips of all men that was the name of sir garnet wolseley who had commanded the successful expedition to the red river region in eighteen seventy sir garnet wolseley had the rare good fortune to sustain the reputation conferred upon him in advance by popular acclaim he had a very hard task to perform of course he could have no difficulty in fighting the ashantis the weapons and the discipline of the english army put all thought of serious battle out of the question but the king of the ashanti had a force fighting on his side far more formidable than the general january and general february on which the emperor nicholas of russia vainly relied wordsworth in his noble ode to toussaint l'ouverture tells the fallen chief to be of good heart for he has on his side powers that will work for him great allies and these are he says earth air and skies not a breathing of the common wind he declares that will forget to support his cause in a literal and terrible sense the king of ashanti had just such allies earth air and skies the earth the air the skies of the gold coast region would at the right time work for him not a breathing of the common wind that would forget to breathe pestilence into the ranks of his enemies the whole campaign must be over and done with within the limited range of the cooler months or there would come into the field to do battle for the african king allies against whom an alexander or a caesar would be powerless sir garnet wolsey and those who fought under him sailors marines and soldiers did their work well they defeated the ashantis wherever they could get at them but that was a matter of course they forced their way to kumasi compelled the king to come to terms one of the conditions being the prohibition of human sacrifices and they were able to leave the country within the appointed time the success of the campaign was a question of days almost of hours and the victory was snatched out of the very jaws of approaching sun and fever sir garnet wolseley sailed from england on september twelfth eighteen seventy three and returned to portsmouth having accomplished all his objects on march twenty first eighteen seventy four the war was not one to be proud of it might easily have been avoided it is certain that england was entirely in the right of the quarrel first or last but nothing could be more satisfactory than the ease success and completeness with which the campaign had been pushed through to its end the gladstone government had also had to deal with one of the periodical famines breaking out in bengal and if they had remained in office might have been able within a very short time to report that their efforts had been successful mr gladstone's sudden action however deprived them of any such opportunity they bequeathed to their successors the announcement of a war triumphantly concluded and a famine checked and they bequeathed to them also a very handsome financial surplus 
so sudden a fall from power had not up to that time been known in the modern political history of the country to find its parallel we shall have to come down six years later still the great liberal administration had fallen as suddenly as the french empire had disappeared like aladdin's palace which was erect and ablaze with light and splendour last night and is not to be seen this morning End of section thirty seven